0: As we go now to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love, so teach us your statutes. You have dealt well with your servants, O Lord, according to your word. Open our eyes now so that we may see Jesus by his spirit, for we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, beginning our reading at verse 45. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad to have you here. We've been considering a series in the morning through the book of Mark, and we've come to Mark chapter 6, verse 45. You'll find that on page 1071 in many of our Pew Bibles. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. So Mark chapter 6, and we're going to begin our reading at verse 45 and read through the end of the chapter. It's Mark chapter 6, beginning our reading at verse 45, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. Immediately he, that is Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Now here we have another one of the great miracles of Jesus Christ that we love to consider as the people of God, right following the feeding of the 5,000, which we talked about last week and thought we all know the details of. Uh, We have another well-known incident in the life of our Lord, in the miracles He performed by walking on the water. Um, And just as we saw in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, it's more than just about the miraculous work that He does. Uh, It comes in an important context It comes to teach us important things about our Lord, not just that he has the miraculous power to walk on water, uh, but the whole picture that we're given here is meant to draw our attention to the fact that Christ comes as the deliverer his people need. Uh, Jesus Christ is the deliverer who his people need. We see that powerfully given to us in this story. Uh, We see that presented first in the prayer of Jesus that Mark recounts for us that, that precedes this great miracle. And uh, then we see the importance of the presence of Jesus when He comes on, on the water to His disciples in the midst of their struggling. Uh, so we want to think about the presence of Jesus. And finally, we want to think about the power of Jesus shown again over the storm and amongst the people He comes to make well. And so that's how we see Jesus presented to us as the deliverer that we need. Uh, by the prayer of Jesus, by the presence of Jesus, and by the power of Jesus. Uh, We want to take time to think about the prayer that Jesus offers in this passage. It's an important uh, moment in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Again, this story follows the immediate aftermath of the feeding of the 5,000. This crowd that's still there is the crowd that Jesus fed. And we're told that immediately after this feeding, he tells the disciples to get in the boat and to proceed to where they're going next, to Bethsaida, and Jesus is going to stay behind and disperse the crowd. Um, It's a very forceful way that Jesus dismisses his disciples. Uh, He made them get into the boat. Uh, We might translate, he compelled them to get in the boat. He did it immediately. We might ask, what's, what's the rush? Why compel them to go? Um, Maybe if we think about how John gives the account of this this occasion, where John's gospel, he tells us that they acknowledged after he fed the 5,000, this must be the prophet that Moses talked about. Let's take him by force and make him king. Um, And you remember that Jesus withdrew to the mountain in John's gospel to get away from the crowd. It's interesting how every gospel writer puts a little different focus on the events Here, Mark does not do what John did there. He does not draw attention to what the crowd wants to do and the crowd's desire. Where does Mark focus our attention? On the control Jesus has over the whole situation. He tells his disciples, you go get on the boat and go. I will stay here and disperse the crowd. And after Jesus takes leave of his disciples, he goes up on the mountain to pray. Um, It's it's a reminder to us that Jesus is in entire control of the situation. Uh, Jesus is in control. That's what Mark wants to tell us. And it's in that that vein of complete control that he goes up on the mountain to pray. I think it's meant to, to bring to mind this idea for us that despite the fact that Jesus is completely in control of what happens... Despite the power Jesus is about to show by walking on the water, still Jesus withdraws for a time to pray. And this is a significant moment in the Gospel of Mark because Jesus only does this in Mark's Gospel three times. Uh, We noted that back when we saw Jesus do it for the first time in chapter 1, that Jesus withdrew to a wilderness place to pray. He did that there at the beginning of his ministry. He will do that again at the end of his ministry. He will withdraw to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And he does it one other time in Mark's gospel, and that's here, that he withdraws to the mountain to pray. And what does Mark always want to focus our attention on when Jesus withdraws to the mountain to pray? It's an opportunity for Christ to remind himself what his mission is before the Father. That particularly in Mark's gospel, when Jesus withdraws, it's in moments where he goes to pray where he might be most tempted to abandon the mission the Father has given him. We saw that in Capernaum, that one of the reasons he withdrew to a desolate place to pray was he was getting so much notoriety so much celebration as a celebrity healer, and it would have been a temptation, right? There's nothing sinful about temptations. The Lord was tempted. But there would have been a temptation to abandon the hard mission that's before him to do the missions that were happier, to become the thing that's more popular and less difficult. At that moment, it was the temptation perhaps to withdraw to be a celebrity healer. Everyone likes a celebrity healer. Look how they react to him when he comes in Gennesaret. They're, They're all happy to see him. But he's come for a much harder purpose. Not simply to be a celebrity healer, but to be a suffering servant. To do the work that his father has called him to do which is to suffer and die for the sake of his people. And maybe that Mark recounts this for us because this was another such moment. He had just fed the 5,000. There are all these people who are happy to see Jesus as the great provider. People who want to make him king. Here is the warrior Messiah who will overthrow the Romans. There'd be another temptation to do the popular thing rather than the needed thing. And when Jesus withdraws to pray, particularly in Mark's gospel, he's finding the strength from his father to do what he's called to do. He's affirming his intention to be what his father has called him to be, not what the world wants him to be, but actually what the world needs him to be. Whenever he withdraws to pray, it's to go to seek the face of his Father and to sort of declare to us his intention to keep doing what his Father has called him to do. Um, I like how one commentator put it, it is prayer through which he affirms his intention to fulfill the will of his Father, which means his submission to the judgment of God on behalf of those without understanding. Jesus didn't come to be a celebrity healer. Jesus didn't come to be a warrior Messiah. Jesus came to die for sinners. And every time he prays, he's recommitting to that mission the Father has given him. He's seeking the face of his Father to continue to find the strength to do the difficult thing his Father has called him to do. It's a, it's a commitment of his intention. And that's why it's so important for us to meditate on the prayer of Christ. That even one who is in complete control of his surroundings still needs to go seek the face of his Father. How much more do we need to do that as people who have little or no control over our circumstances? But even more, what is Jesus doing by this prayer? He's committing to do what we really need him to do, which is save sinners. Save those sinners who at that very moment were out struggling on the water, making painful headway. By showing that commitment to his Father's will, he's also showing his commitment he has to care for us. Jesus didn't need a Savior, we need a Savior. The people who had gathered around him in that crowd needed a Savior. The people who were struggling on their, in their boat on the sea needed a Savior. You and I need a Savior. And to think about this prayer is a wonderful thing for us to think about because it reminds us that Jesus was committed to save us. He's not just praying for his own strength or for his disciples struggling on the water. He's praying for all of his disciples who will come after him, for all those who will believe on his name, for all those who will cling to him as their only hope for a Savior. If he would have have failed in that mission, there would be no salvation. If he would have turned from the Father's purpose, we would be without hope in the world. But this prayer is a wonderful expression of His commitment to His Father and His commitment to all of us. To be not what the world wanted Him to be, but to be what sinners needed Him to be. A Savior who would go to die on the cross for the sins of His people. That He might go and set His people free. That this is the Lord we serve this is the deliverer we have, one who is faithful in prayer. And that's important for us to remember, too, because Jesus is still praying for his people. He's just doing it on a different mountain. He's still on Mount Zion Praying for his people. He's ascended into glory. He is no longer the suffering servant. He's died for sins. He's been raised for our justification. He's been seated at the right hand of his Father in glory. He rules and reigns now, but he's still a praying Savior. Even though the suffering Savior prayed for us during his time on earth on that mountain, he's now on Mount Zion, ascended in glory, but he's still a praying Savior. He's now the Lamb Triumphant praying for his people. How good it is to know that we have a Savior who prays for us, who prays for us so that we know we can be saved. That's one of the things that we should be struck by in this passage, that we have a Savior who prays for us, but we shouldn't just take note of the prayer of Jesus, we should take note of the presence of Jesus. He prays for the disciples He prays for us all, and then what happens after he prays? How does Mark describe the situation to us? When Jesus has been praying, what's been happening with the disciples? We read about that in verses 47 into 48. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. When you're in a sailboat, you can't sail directly into the wind. Um, It's physics somehow. Don't ask me how, but that's just the rule. You can't sail directly into the wind in a sailboat. If you want to sail directly into the wind, that means you have to row. Um, And so the the notion here is they're they're making that tortured, painful progress of trying to row a boat directly into the wind. Um, The word in Greek that's used has this sense of tortured. Tortured. They're making sort of they're being tortured in their progress, um, painful headway. If you've ever tried rowing a boat against the wind, you know the pain that they're going through. Um, as I read this, I, I had a vivid image of myself on a stand-up paddleboard in Marina del Rey, and I'd gone out with the wind at my back, which was great. And then I turned around to come back and I was going right into the teeth of the wind, and I just had to paddle and paddle and paddle. And the minute I stopped, the board began to blow around in the wind. Um, And so when they said, painful headway, I thought, I don't only have seen this, I've lived this. Um, Because if you're going right into the teeth of the wind, it's hard, you can't make a lot of progress. You're fighting against it. That's what Jesus sees the disciples doing. This is a different kind of storm than they faced before. The storm in chapter 4 was deadly. This one's just defeating. They can't get where they want to go. And Jesus sees them in their lack of progress. He sees them making that painful headway. Um, And what does Jesus do? It's a beautiful story. Of our Savior and his care for his disciples because he sees them and he goes out to them walking on the water there's so much here to comfort the hearts and minds of believers to remember that the Lord sees us in our troubles now this is a literal sea they're in literal trouble against literal waves But doesn't the scriptures often talk about the troubles of God's people in terms of metaphors of the ocean and of the waters? When the psalmist wants to express his struggle in Psalm 69, how does he express it? Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. It's, it's a water metaphor. It's an ocean metaphor. Or think about Psalm 124, verses 3 through 5. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Right? Trouble is often conceived of in this water metaphor. And that continues even into the New Testament when Jude wants to talk about ungodly people who deny the Lord Jesus Christ. How does he describe them? He says, they are wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Um, Even though these disciples are on literal troubled waters, the troubles of God's people are often described in terms of metaphorical troubled waters. And isn't it wonderful to read that Jesus sees them and comes to them? Jesus sees us in our trouble. Whether it's these disciples cast on literal troubled waters, or if it's his people who are cast on the troubled waters that come to us in this life, Jesus sees us in our struggle, and Jesus comes to us in our struggle. That is the God we have. That is the savior we've been given. One who comes to us when we are struggling. Who doesn't just see us in our struggle and say, I hope you make it, keep rowing. But rather comes to us in our struggle. As he came to the disciples here on the sea. And how does he come? Walking on the water. Right? It's not just that he sees them and that he goes to them, it's how he goes to them. How does he go to his disciples? He goes walking on the sea. You know, this is one of the moments where we want to kind of grab Mark by the lapels and say, tell us more about this. What do you mean he just walked out on the sea? It led some people to try to say, well, you know, maybe there was some kind of sandbar out there, and he knew about the sandbar, so he's walking, just looked like he walked on the sea. That's not what they see here. That's not what's going on here. Jesus goes out to them, walking on the sea. And what is that broadcasting to everyone who reads this? Because who can walk on the sea but the Lord? There's only one who has the power to do this. When Job contemplates the glory of God, in Job chapter 9, verse 8, he says, God who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. What does it mean that you trample or tread on the waves of the sea? It's another way to translate that passage. What does it mean to trample or tread on the waves of the sea? It means to have subjection to it. In the Bible, when you tread on something, when you trample something underfoot, it shows that you have subjection over it. When the psalmist wants to communicate the subjection God, God's people will have over their enemies, that's how he puts it in Psalm 91.13. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Um, what, what does the psalmist mean there? Does he mean, boys and girls, you'll squish a lion like a bug under your foot? you Have seen those lions at the zoo? They're pretty big. Now, what is the psalmist saying? To have something under your foot, to be able to tread on something, shows that you have complete mastery over it. It's in subjection to you. And who can do that with the water? Who can do that with the raging seas? The Bible makes a point. Only God can do that. Only God can trample on the waves. The waves stand for the the most uncontrollable force on the planet. That's what the waves were in their mind. They represent the uncontrollable forces of nature. I mean, think back to the storms we have sometimes here that have gotten so big that the waves come and smash concrete and destroy steel. It shows us the power of the oceans, the power that's there. And they recognize that. And for them, that was the unconquerable force. No one can tread on the water. Even in Egyptian hieroglyphics, when they're picture writing, they wanted to show something that was impossible. Their picture for the impossible was a man walking on the water. When Roman poets talked about Neptune, their sea god, he was always swimming in the water. For them, not even their God could walk on the water. But what does the Bible tell us? God is a God who walks on the water. Take the most uncontrollable force there is, and God will tread it underfoot. It is in subjection to him. That's what Jesus is doing when he walks on the water. He's saying the thing against which you can only make painful headway is totally in subjection to him. In fact, the picture we're given is after they're rowing for how, who knows how long, Jesus is going to walk right by. Right? There's a, that interesting language that he meant to pass them by walking on the water. I think that was from their perspective. They look out and they see someone who's kind of just jetting by while they're making no progress at all. And they think it's a ghost and they all see it and they're all terrified. I mean, you can imagine this situation. You've been rowing for hours, making painful headway. You're exhausted. You're you're pained from all your exertion. It's in the it's in the fourth watch of the night, between somewhere between three a.m. and six in the morning. It's dark. It's stormy. You look out, and it looks like there's someone out there. You know, it's easy for us to think of the disciples and say, "What a bunch of idiots! Why are they afraid of ghosts?" Um, but what would you have thought if you looked out and saw someone who looks like they're walking on the water? And they're terrified because they don't understand that it's the Lord who's come to them walking on the water. That the Lord has come to them in their need to bring his powerful presence to bear in the only way, in a way that only he can. They don't understand it. They don't know what's happening until they hear his voice. Right? They cry out in terror thinking they're seeing a ghost or some kind of apparition. And what is it that turns the situation around for them? It's when they find out that the presence that they're afraid of is not some ghost passing by the boat, but it's the Lord Jesus Christ coming to them. The cry of terror is met with the comforting call to faith. Take heart. Don't be afraid. It is I. That's what he says to them. What is the source of our comfort? It's the presence of the Lord. You can take courage and not be afraid because of who he is. It is I. Another way way to translate that from the Greek is simply to say, I am. Take heart. Don't be afraid. I am. Reminds us of what Moses was asking the question of the Lord in the burning bush. If I go to Israel and say God sent me and they ask me what is God's name, what should I tell them? You remember what God said to him out of the burning bush. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jesus is showing that he is the great I am by treading on the water. And that when that great God comes to us in our need, there's nothing to fear. All we should do is take courage from his presence. Because he is, I am. That's a strange way for us to put it, isn't it? Um, for us, that statement is lacking a fulfillment, right? If we use that conversa- in just in conversation, someone came up to you and said, "You know, I am." You'd say, "What? You're here. You're tired. You're hungry. What? You're you're what? So why is God just I am? Because he is." everything he is everything we need he is who he is always everywhere Um, the god who is i am is as the belgic confession rightly says almighty perfectly wise just good and the overflowing fountain of all good and that's what he is wherever he is whenever he is, however he comes to us. That's all we need to know about God. I am who I am, always, everywhere. And I am who I am for my people. Jesus' presence is there for them. That's why Jesus is there. And they're amazed, but they don't get it. And that's why we're told they don't get it, because their hearts were still hardened. Um, Verse 52 takes us back to the previous miracle. Why don't they understand? Because they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Jesus has now come and done the two great Old Testament miracles of the Exodus. What were those miracles? God fed his people with bread in the wilderness, and God made a pathway through the sea. And here is Jesus who made a pathway through the sea and fed them with bread from heaven, and they're still saying, that's amazing, who is this? And what are we told? They didn't know because their hearts were still hardened. Their hearts were still closed to the truth. If we wanna really understand Jesus' presence to our comfort, Our hearts have to be opened by the Spirit. Our hearts have to be opened to see Him for who He is. And what a contrast we have between the closed hearts of the disciples in this moment and the open hearts that greet Christ when He arrives in Gennesaret. I think that's when we see the power of Jesus. He steps in the boat and the storm is calmed just as happened in chapter four. We see the power of Jesus and the calming of the storm, but particularly at the end of this chapter, we see it in the cure of all those who come to him, the cure of all those who seek the Lord to find healing and help in their need. Um, it's impressive for all the words of action that Mark gives us, right? They ran about the region, And they brought everyone who was sick on their beds. And wherever he came, they laid the sick in the marketplaces. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his garment. And they touched him and they were healed. Those are remarkable action words for what's going on in Gennesaret. It's because their hearts are open to Jesus. And it's a testimony to the faith they have in him that they come running to him the way they do. All this action is the fruit of their faith in coming to Christ to find healing. Now for sure it wasn't perfect faith and it wasn't complete faith. But they still came in faith and Jesus made them well. And why? Do you have to have perfect faith for Jesus to help you? Do you have to have complete and utter faith for jesus to make you well i love how one commentator put it jesus patiently bears with their limited insight and graciously heals those who reach out to him from the bed of affliction jesus is patient with them in the weakness of their faith and out of his gracious compassion he still reaches out to them in power and saves them that's what this miracle these miracles tell us about the power of jesus the coming of the king has meant to put an end to all the ways nature is against his people all the way this fallen world is against us the king has come to quiet the nature and to cure the sick and to make us well He's come to restore in righteousness what was ruined in rebellion. And knowing that that's who he is, knowing that that's the power of Jesus, what should our attitude towards him be? It should be exactly what the attitude of the people of Gennesaret was. They go to Jesus. Wherever he is, they go to Jesus. Wherever he can be found, they go to Jesus. And whoever goes to Jesus in that faith and touches him is well. So what should our attitude be? We need to go where Jesus is. And they not only go, they they bring the other people who need Jesus there. So what ought we to do as God's people? We need to bring people to Jesus. And how do we do that? We bring them to wherever Jesus may be found. Where is Jesus now? He's in heaven, interceding at the right hand of his Father. So how do we bring people to Jesus in heaven? By prayer. That's the best way you can bring people to Jesus, is by praying for them. We all know people we know and love who need Jesus. Bring them to Jesus in prayer. And you need Jesus too, so don't forget to bring yourself to Jesus in prayer. That's how we bring ourselves to Jesus. But where else is Jesus? He's here. Isn't he? He's present with his people. He's speaking to us by his spirit in the word. He's present with us at the Lord's table. We should bring people to Jesus, to where he is. He speaks to us in church twice every Lord's Day. If we really want to bring people to Jesus, why wouldn't we bring them to where he is? To where he's speaking. To where he may be found. Why wouldn't we be there when Jesus is speaking? We need to go where Jesus is. Hoping that he will do for all who come to him what he did for the people of Gennesaret. What he's done for all of us who put our faith in him, he's made us well. And that should be our prayer for the world. That they would come to Jesus and be made well. I hope that's true of you this morning by faith. That you've come to Jesus and been made well. Because Christ who called you is here. He's faithful to save. And he says to all of us who trust in him, take heart and don't be afraid, amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are that you've sent us such a faithful savior who is not only a savior who prays for us, but who sees us in our trouble and comes to us with his almighty power and can make all well. So Lord, we pray that we would, as those who've come to Jesus today, be made well by faith, that we would put our faith and trust in the one who alone can walk on the sea and save sinners. We pray also that many more people might be brought to Jesus. Help us to be faithful in bringing them to Him in prayer, to bring them to church with us, that they might also hear our Lord speak to us, and how thankful we are that You've provided us such a Savior, the Deliverer we need, who has come to make all things in the world well and to restore in righteousness what was ruined in rebellion. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you for the work of his cross. And we thank you for his continued work on our behalf. And hear us for we pray.